0: The Old Testament opens with a Pentateuch. Pentateuch comes actually from a Greek word, even though the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Pende is the Greek word for five. The Old Testament opens with a series of five books written by Moses, the great prophet-deliverer of Israel who was a picture, a prophetic picture in type of the far greater prophet-deliverer of not just Israel, but the deliverer of the entire world. And he, of course, is the Lord Jesus. The Pentateuch of the Old Testament is all about beginnings. Actually, the word Genesis means beginnings or origins. In the God-inspired writings of Moses, we find the origin of the universe. We find the origin of order and complexity. We find the origin of the solar system and all the stars of the heavenlies. We find the origin of planet Earth and of life itself. And speaking of life, it is from Genesis that we learn of the origin of man of the institution of marriage and women, woman too, man and woman, we learn of the institution of marriage and of the family, the origin of sin, and of God's first declaration regarding his redemptive plan of salvation, which involves man's deliverance from sin and death through God's promised seed of the woman. You know, over a hundred times in the Bible it talks about the seed of the man. Because who is it that has seed? The man. The woman does it. There's only one time in the Bible that it speaks of the seed of the woman. Already, Genesis 3.15, we have the plan of salvation through a virgin-born Savior who would eventually bruise the head of the seed of the serpent, Satan. You know, you could summarize the entire Bible with two verses. Genesis 3.15 and John 3.16. Really, it's all there in those two verses. In the Old Testament Pentateuch, we learn also of the origin of diverse languages. Of government, civilization, society, culture. Of the nations and of the races. The origin of false religion. And the beginning of God's purpose... Purpose beginning through the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His purpose beginning of one particular nation which was founded upon Jacob's 12 sons. Remember Jacob? And after he wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord who was the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord changed his name from Jacob, Jacob, which means deceiver, to what? Israel, and it was from Jacob's 12 sons that this particular nation was born, Israel. We find in Genesis, or the Pentateuch, the other books of the Pentateuch, the divine laws that were given to this particular nation. And, of course, we read about the whole tabernacle sacrificial system given to this nation in order to picture mankind's desperate need for the perfect Passover, blood, atonement, Passover, lambs, blood, atonement for the sins of the whole world. That whole tabernacle system was just pointing to Christ, wasn't it? The books of the Old Testament tell of the beginning of the development of the nation of Israel. The Pentateuch of the Old Testament really tells us about Israel's birth, her infancy stages, her adolescence her struggles, her trials. Do you know, it's interesting to think about the fact that she had deliverance provided through Moses, right? She was delivered from her slavery in Egypt. But she could not enter into the promised land for quite a long while. And why was that? Because of disbelief. But there was always a remnant, Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron, you know, there was a remnant of believers, But overall, corporately, Israel couldn't enter into the promised land because of disbelief. Well, in the New Testament, we have the same picture. She was delivered by Jesus Christ, her Savior. But she really couldn't enter into the the kingdom of God. She couldn't have the literal kingdom here on earth. She couldn't enter into that kingdom again because of her disbelief. But there was a remnant, wasn't there? Of those who did believe, we have the apostles and 120 in the upper room, and it grew from there. But there's a lot of similarities. Anyhow, um, we could say, in a sense, that Israel was sort of Christ's pre-incarnate spiritual body on earth during the Old Testament. Because he, he was, you know, supposed to work through her to reach the whole world with the promised gospel message that a Savior was coming, the seed of the woman. So we could say, in a sense, that Israel was sort of his pre-incarnate spiritual body on earth. Just like the church, she had a lot of tears and a lot of problems, you know. But um, it was from Israel, it was really from Israel's womb, that the Savior, Messiah, was prophesied to come, to be born. Well, now you're all thinking Catherine's going to teach us from Genesis, right? We're going to be in the Old Testament. Wrong. (laughs) Did you realize, I have said all this to say what I'm going to say next. Did you realize that the New Testament also begins with a Pentateuch? A series of five books. That talk about beginnings. The early church, her birth, her infancy, her adolescence. Many, many similarities. I'm going to be explaining some of them. While praying over the holidays, and when we broke before Thanksgiving, I honestly had no idea what we were going to be studying next. There were all kinds of ideas spinning around in my mind. And I told you we might do this, and we might do that. And, and then you guys gave me some suggestions, but I really didn't know. I didn't have any clear direction about it. But, of course, you were praying, and I was praying. And one day, I happened to just randomly, but sovereignly randomly, I know now the Lord was in it. But I just went to, I have a big library library. And I happened to go to a book and picked it out. Now, this book was purchased in 1984. I have never read it. But I pulled that book off my bookshelf. It's a book written in the early 1900s by Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. And I opened it up, seeking the Lord's direction, and in the very first sentence of that book... It says that the book of Acts completes the New Testament Pentateuch. It was like the Lord wrote it in the sky. Catherine, you have not finished the New Testament Pentateuch. I knew without a shed. I called Terry and I was crying. I said, I know what the Lord wants me to teach. And I'll tell you what, I got so excited. And I couldn't get excited about other things. I picked up a study. on I mean, I collected all these books on angels because I was going to teach you all about angels. Okay? Holy angels and fallen angels. Wouldn't that have been fun? A year of demons. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the rate I go. And I got other books out to study this and study that. And nothing just sparked in my heart. But after that, it was like people gave me books, people said things. Like one lady in the night Bible study said to me, she said, uh, you know, why don't we just continue with those apostles and what happened next after the Lord's ascension? It was little things like that. that, And every time I got out Acts or a commentary on Acts or heard a CD message on Acts, I just got excited and I know without a shadow of a doubt that it is the Lord's will for me To teach the book of Acts. A study of the early church. Now, whether you feel led to study the book of Acts is between you and the Lord. I know that that's what he's telling me to teach next. All right? (laughs) And some of you might be going like my daughter did when she first heard about it. My daughter's, one of my daughters is in the other study. She said, eh, eh. I can always count on her, you know, for, <laughs> for encouragement. <laughs> know. She said, that doesn't sound very exciting. And some of you might be thinking, ah, that doesn't sound very exciting. Or you might be thinking, well, I've already studied that before. Do you think we can learn something new? i tell you, just in the few weeks I've been studying it, I've learned a lot of new things already. Uh, Some might say, well, I don't need to know that stuff. You know, it's all about what happened in the past, and there isn't any relevance to us today in the 21st century. (laughs) Wrong. But if that is the case with you, if that's what you're thinking, I just ask that you would bear with me through the rest of this lesson, through the next lesson, because they're both going to kind of be introductory. Um, Before you make your determination regarding this study, based on those kind of thoughts, let me just... Wet your appetite a little bit with some tidbits from this book that maybe you never did know before. I didn't. I had never realized them. I mean, I knew the facts, but I never realized them in this light. Okay? All right. Such as, did you know that in Acts, there is the record of two resurrections from the dead? And that those two resurrections give us a preview of the resurrection of the dead that will occur one day because of the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. And interestingly, one of those is the resurrection from the dead of a female. Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Now, Peter was an apostle to the Jews, Dorcas was a Jewish woman, likely, because her other name is Tabitha, which is Jewish. Then we also have, later on, the resurrection of someone else, and he happened to be a male. Poor guy made a terrible mistake. He fell asleep during preaching. (laughs) Don't do that. It was pretty safe in your pews, but he was upstairs in a window. His name was Eutychus, and he was Greek. He was a Gentile. He was raised from the dead by the Apostle Paul, who was the Apostle to the Gentile. So we have the resurrection of the church, Jew and Gentile, male and female, represented by the resurrections of those two people, Dorcas and Eutychus. Did you know that in this early inspired, uh, this early church inspired account, there are three significant, very significant salvation uh, conversions that are described in some specific detail. Now, there's lots of salvations in the book of Acts. Lots of people get saved. But three are given to us in some great detail. And there's a reason for that. You know, everyone in this room all of us can, if we, if we could do it, we can't do it, but if we could do it, we could trace our ancestry back to one of the three sons of Noah. We all come from either Ham, Shem, or Japheth. Okay? That's all in Genesis chapter 10. Since the time of Noahic flood, everyone can trace, well, we can't, but if we could, we could trace back to one of those sons. So to show that the Lord Jesus Christ died for all, for everyone, the whole world, we have in the book of Acts the record of the salvation, first of all, of an Ethiopian eunuch. Chapter 8 of Acts. He was a descendant of Noah's son, Ham. The very next chapter, we have a detailed record of the salvation of a Jewish Pharisee named Saul, who, of course, became the Apostle Paul. He was definitely a direct descendant of Noah's son, Shem. Shem is where you get Shemites, Semites. I say anti-Semitic, that's against the descendants of Shem. And then the very next chapter... 10, chapter 10, we have the recorded salvation of a Roman centurion named, what, Huh? right, Cornelius, very next chapter, and he is a descendant of Noah's son, Japheth. So in three chapters in a row, you've got the Ethiopian eunuch, you've got Saul of Tarsus, And you've got the Roman centurion, um, Cornelius, showing that Jesus died for all. That's why those are so detailed, because it's important. Did you ever think of that before? Did you ever know that before? So see, you've already learned something new. (laughs) Also in Acts is the exciting news of the number of believers growing by leaps and bounds. The book begins with 120 believers gathered together in the upper room in Jerusalem, awaiting the coming of the Holy Spirit. So it begins with 120 believers, Acts 1 verse 15. That number jumps by chapter 2 to 3,120. And then by chapter 4, it jumps to 8,120. And in chapter 5, we are told that an untold multitude of men and women were saved. And that number just keeps growing after the gospel travels everywhere. It's very exciting. Don't think that the book of Acts is a dull book. Every page you turn to is exciting. There was a great company of priests. Who were saved and I always get excited about that the priests A great company of them were saved Acts 6 7 there were Pharisees saved not just Saul other Pharisees as well Acts fifteen five. There were Roman proconsuls and deputies and governors who were saved. There were prison keepers and their families who were saved. There were all manner of people saved. The book tells us of it's a book of beginnings. Tells us of the beginning of the church, the birth of the church. It tells us about the first deacons of the church. It tells us about the first martyrs of the church, Stephen and James. It tells us about the first missionaries of the church. It tells us about the first place where believers were called Christians. Where was that? Antioch, right? You know what else it tells us? It tells us about the first gospel concert. Now, I don't know if Paul and Silas could sing worth a toot, but they had a captive audience. <laughs> There is really excitement on every single page. There are wonderful spirit-filled revivals that take place. And then there are also satanically fired-up riots that take place. There are accounts of holy angels smiting apostles on their side. (laughs) A holy angel. Peter was sleeping, even though he he was going to be killed the next day. He's sleeping in prison. So the angel has to smite him. You know, upside the head, like they say in the South. Actually, says he smote him on his his side to wake him up, to protect him, to get him out of prison. And then you have an angel who smites King Herod with worms that eat him up. That's not a dull book, is it? told my daughter. I said, don't you want to hear these exciting stories? (laughs) And there are fallen angels, demons, who um, possess sorcerers and young damsels, and vagabond exorcists. What about the seven sons of Siva? That's an exciting story. <laughs> the devil is certainly active and alive in the book of Acts, even though he's—you know, he was sentenced. He was bruised at Calvary, yet that sentence has not been carried out. God still has a plan for the evils of Satan. He is still using his evil to work about his good. And so, you know, he's sentenced, but he's on a very long chain, isn't he? So we see him very active, the devil, in the book of Acts. He is doing his best to stamp out the spread of the gospel. And he tries by all kinds of means. He tries to ban it. He tries to bury it. He tries to beat up and, and bind and behead its emissaries. He tries to buy it off. He tries to blur it. And one of the worst problems is that he tries to blend it and bind it with Judaism. Now, for more than a decade, as most of you know, we have been in a detailed study of the first four of the five books of the New Testament Pentateuch. And that sounds worse than it, it was, because we did have our summers off. <laughs> and we do have time for the Christmas holidays off. So, you know, say we've been in for over a decade, that sounds scary, doesn't it? Well, how long is it going to take us to go through Acts? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't even know if the Lord's going to lead me to go through the whole book. I'm not going to promise anything anymore. I was thinking in my mind I might just go through the first seven or eight chapters and then, you know, we'll leave the life of the Apostle Paul for another time. But I'm not going to say that because I don't know. When we get there, I might be all worked up to do the life of Paul. We'll just see. But that might be a year or two off anyway. So, <laughs> the Lord might have come back. Yeah, Don't you hope 2014 is the year of the Lord's return? That'd be cool. Fourteen is double seven, you know, two times seven. All right, anyhow. um, So as you know, the first four books of the New Testament Pentateuch are called the Gospels. And they presented us with the earthly life of the Lord Jesus, the Deliverer promised by God through the writings of the Old Testament Deliverer, Moses, in the Old Testament Pentateuch. And we concluded that long study right before Thanksgiving with a look at his... Ascension, his ascension back into heaven from the Bethany side of the Mount of Olives. A man in a glorified human body now sits on the throne of heaven. Wow, wonderful. As the Son of God, co equal and co eternal with the Father, he has every single right to be there. His atonement work was over and the many infallible proofs of his victory over sin and death via his post-resurrection appearances was also complete. Never ever again will there be the need for a blood sacrifice for man's sins. Te telestai, he said, remember? It is finished. Once for all, no more need. His work was done. He could sit down, which no Old Testament priest could ever do because their work was never done. The prophetic picture of both the priesthood and the Old Testament sacrificial system was complete. It was fulfilled. It was done. It was negated. No longer necessary. There was to be a new priesthood. A royal priesthood, Peter says, made up of a peculiar people. We are kind of peculiar, aren't we? (laughs) And this priesthood was not just to be made up of people from one nation, but people from all nations, And it would consist of both Jews and Gentiles. You do know that in the Old Testament priesthood, no Gentile could ever be a priest. Either a Levitical or an Aaronic priest. Only Jews. Now, Jew and Gentile form up this royal priesthood. Males and females. You do know that in the Old Testament priesthood, no female was ever a priest. There just weren't any. This new priesthood consists of bond and free, rich and poor, young and old. This new and royal priesthood. You know, it was also forbidden in the Old Testament days for any man to be both a king, royalty, and a priest. There was only one exception to that, and he was really strange. His name was Melchizedek. He was either... The pre-incarnate Christ himself, or he was definitely a figure of him. He's the only exception. You could not be both king and priest. But in this new royal priesthood of the church, when we're born again, we become children of the king. We're royalty, aren't we? It's a royal priesthood. We're priests because we don't need an interceding priest. The veil was rent when Jesus bowed his head in death and gave up his spirit, and from top to bottom, that veil rent, and now we have direct access into the Holy of Holies. No more need for an interceding priest, right? We're a royal priesthood. We are all priests and kings, and we're one more thing. If you proclaim the gospel message, if you teach the word of God, you're a prophet, you're speaking forth the word of god we're priests kings and prophets all three just like our savior right isn't that amazing isn't that wonderful isn't that exciting however even though the resurrected ascended lord jesus sat down on his throne in heaven after his ascension At the right hand of God. And the Father said, sit down at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Even though he did that, we are not really finished with our life of Christ study. We may have finished our look at his earthly life in his physical body, but he continued to work on earth in his spiritual body as he yet does today. Is he still working today through his spiritual body? What is his spiritual body? The church. And even though his work today is not recorded in Holy Scripture, we do have his work during the early church recorded for us in Scripture. As far as Scripture is concerned, we have the book of Acts to tell us of the continued work of Christ at least through the next 35 years or so. They're not sure about the length, but it's somewhere between 30 and 40 years is the time span of the book of Acts, at first generation. And actually, this became very evident to us in our last lesson of our Life of Christ series. Because where did that those last lessons take us? They just flowed us right from the Gospels into the book of Acts. Chronologically, it just moved us right into the first chapter of the book of Acts, where we learned some of the more specific details Regarding the Lord's final words to his men before his ascension. Um, Actually, Luke, you know, Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, the human author, as he was the gospel of Acts. But he, it was only from Luke in the book of Acts that we learned that the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus lasted for 40 days. By the way, now you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Yeah, okay, not the Gospel of Acts. The Acts is not a Gospel. It's church history. But Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. All right, if you look at verse 3, only Luke in Acts told us that the resurrection appearances lasted for 40 days. We wouldn't have known that from the Gospel records. And only from the book of Acts do we learn about the disciples' continual gaze upward, even after the Lord Jesus disappeared from view in a cloud. And only from Acts did we learn about the uh, message from two heavenly messengers. And all that's in verses 9 to 11. So you see, the book of Acts is the natural outflow of the Gospels. It is indeed the fifth book of the New Testament Pentateuch. And I don't want to leave anything unfinished. So we're going to study the book of Acts. And not only in Acts do we find the very same subject as the Gospels, who is the Lord Jesus, but we even have one of the same authors, as I just mentioned, Luke. And uh, Luke, of course, was a Greek. He was a Greek physician who accompanied the Apostle Paul, beginning with his second missionary journey. So in many ways, this is not really a new study. It is the continuing story of Christ working through his church. For example, look at Acts 2, verse 47. Acts 2, 47. Here we have the summation of what happened after the early evangelism in Jerusalem. It says, notice this. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Question. Who is the one working in the book of Acts? Who is the one who is adding to his church? The Lord Jesus. He's the ascended Christ. He's the one working. There are at least two dozen references to the Lord working in the book of Acts. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is working in the book of Acts. Acts And the apostles know this. And that is why when people try to praise them or even worship them, what do the apostles say? Don't do that. This isn't us. (laughs) We're not doing this. This is the Lord. The Lord did it. Now, the uninspired title of this book is unfortunate. You know, none of the titles of the books of the Bible are God-inspired. They're man-made titles. I don't know about yours, but mine is called... My, my title here is The Acts of the Apostles. Some might just say Acts or Acts of the Apostles. Mine says The Acts of the Apostles. And that makes it sound like it contains all of the Acts of all of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles. But that isn't the case at all. Of course, Luke does record some of the Acts of some of the apostles, but the vast majority of the apostles are never mentioned again after Acts one thirteen. Look at Acts one thirteen. There are their names, but most of them you will never hear from again. (laughs) That's it. Now, that doesn't mean they're not active. We just don't have the record of what they did after this. Um, And not even all the acts of some of the apostles are given for us. There are better, better titles for this book. And the key of the supreme value of this book is found in a a little word in the very first verse. Look at the first verse, Acts 1.1. Luke, again, as he did in his gospel, again he is addressing a man named Theophilus. Okay? And he writes to Mr. Theophilus, The former treatise, which just means letter, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus, here's the word, began to do, both to do and to teach. Ha ha! You see that key little word, began? That's the key for a more correct title for this book. Luke does not open his second letter, his second treatise, To this man, Mr. Theophilus, who we'll discuss in a minute, by referring him back to his former account of all that Jesus did, past tense, and all that Jesus taught, past tense, rather, Luke opens up his second letter to Mr. Theophilus by referring him back to his former account of all that Jesus merely began to do, and to teach. Jesus was just beginning, right? 2,000 years later, he's still doing and teaching through his church, his spiritual body on earth. So a better title for this book, unfortunately it's a little bit longer, so maybe you can come up, that's one of your homework questions, to come up with a better title for this book. But here's a more accurate title, but it would be too long. This is mine, okay? And you know I'm always (laughs) long-winded. The continued acts and teaching of Christ by His Spirit through His Church—that's actually what it is. The continued works of Christ. You know, it's not. This book is not just about acts, okay? That gives us the wrong impression too. It's not just about deeds, you know, works and miracles and boat trips and journeys, and that kind of thing. It's also teaching. He began to do and teach. There are some 19 sermons in these 28 chapters of the book of Acts. So there's a lot of teaching in this book as well. Anyway, you come up with a better title. Now, that was our introduction. Let's look today at the first three, that's all we're going to get, the first three verses of chapter one, all right? Read with me or look with me at these words. Luke writes, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. What is his passion? His crucifixion, his suffering, and his crucifixion is death. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Well, as I just mentioned, the very first thing that Luke did in his second letter to Theophilus was to link it, to connect it with his first letter to this man, which was the gospel of Luke. So the book of Acts, you see, is directly linked directly linked, connected, to the Gospel of Luke. And since the Gospel of Luke is directly connected to the other three Gospels, therefore, we know that Acts is linked, connected, to the four Gospels. It is, indeed, the fifth book of the New Testament Pentateuch. The inference of Luke's introduction to Acts, is that what he was writing to Mr. Theophilus was going to be the story of the continuance of the doings and the teachings of the same subject, the Lord Jesus Christ. So a summary of what I've been saying, and I'm saying this over and over again so you get it, summary is that Luke's first letter, which was the Gospel of Luke, um, recorded what Jesus did while he was on earth in his physical body. His second letter, which is the book of Acts, was written to tell, "Oh Theophilus." That's how he addresses. that kind of funny? It was like, if I wrote a letter to you and I said, "Oh, Terry, <laughs> Something is missing. I want you to look real quickly. Can you do that? Hold your place in Acts and look at Luke 1:3 and see how he addressed Mr. Theophilus in his first letter to him. Look at Luke 1:3. Whoever gets there first, tell me what it says. How does he address Theophilus? Most excellent, Theophilus. Now, in the book of Acts, what is missing? Most excellent is missing. Well, in his second letter, Luke tells, "O oh, Theophilus, what Christ was continuing to do through his spiritual body, the church. Now, one thing I want to point out is the difference in the, the ways that Luke addressed this man. The difference makes it obvious that the gospel of Luke accomplished its purpose. What is the purpose of the gospels? To share Christ and lead men and women and young people to salvation in Christ. The gospel of Luke accomplished its purpose. Mr. Theophilus, oh, most excellent Theophilus, got saved when he read the first letter. Theophilus is a very Greek name. It comes from two Greek words, Theo, which means God. Theology is the study of God, right? Theo and Phileo. Remember our talk about love? Agape love, Phileo love? You put those two words together and you've got lover of God. He had a great name. Theophilus means lover of God. Well, we know that when Luke wrote him, this man, the first, his first letter, the Gospel of Luke, this man was uh, lost. And he was obviously a Gentile political ruler. We know that because that's the term given to Felix and Festus, who were Roman rulers. You know, that was a, they called him most excellent. It's like your highness or something, you know. Uh, Most noble is one of the other terms that's used in the book of Acts. This man was lost. He was unsaved, but obviously he was inquisitive. He wanted to know something about this Jesus of Nazareth. So Luke addressed his letter to him, his gospel to him. Now, how do I know this man was lost? I'll tell you how I know. Because no Christian ever addressed another believer with that kind of exalted title, most excellent. Because all in Christ are equal. So we know that Mr. Theophilus, somehow or another, reading the book of Luke or whatever, he got saved because in Luke's second letter to him, he's no longer most excellent, is he? He's on an equal status with Luke. So the gospel of Luke accomplished its purpose, which is really the whole purpose for church history, to bring the lost to salvation in Jesus Christ. When you and I gather for worship, in our local churches, or when we come here on Tuesdays to study the Bible, which actually studying the scripture is the greatest form of worship. Did you know that? Singing is wonderful, but the greatest form of worship, don't just think it's singing. The greatest form is studying God's word. But when we do that, we're not doing so in memory of a a dead leader. We worship and we study in the presence of a living Lord. He is here among us. Where two or three are gathered, there is he in the midst of us. His spirit indwells us for the first time in history. The spirit indwells us. That is exciting. He is here and he is smiling. I know he is smiling on our desire to get to know him better through his word. Now just as the Lord did with Theophilus, we see him in Acts continuing his new creation work in the lives of his followers who have by faith in him experienced the new birth and are empowered for the first time by the third person of the triune Godhead, actually indwelling them. Christ is still working today, some 2,000 years later, saving people through the gospel truth and making them lovers of God. Do you see right away the sovereignty, the divine inspiration of this book that Luke, of all people he picked to write these letters to, picked a man with a name like that? Do you think that was just random? No, I believe, just like when the scripture didn't tell us who Cleopas' traveling companion was on the road to Emmaus, and just like scripture didn't tell us who Thomas' twin was, it's so that you and I can identify and put our place there, you know? These letters are written to all of us because we're all Theophiluses, right? <laughs> Lovers of God, I hope you are is the God-inspired record of approximately the first 30 to 40 years of the Lord working through his church. The church is the visible expression of Christ's spirit in the world, Ephesians 1, and 23. Church history is really the continuation of the acts and the teaching of Christ through his people. Unfortunately, As happened with Israel, many tears and much false teaching has entered into what is known as Christendom. So that much of, sadly, much of what the world sees today, and the world doesn't understand that, you know. The world looks and if anybody calls themselves a Christian, they don't know the difference that they really are true Christians and they really are born-again Christians and then there's a whole bunch of people who are professing Christians only and they've never really been born again. They don't know that distinction. So when the world looks at what they think is the church, um, they do not see the true acts and teaching of Christ at all. But they see the counterfeit doings of many false teachers and many wolves masquerading as sheep, tares calling themselves wheat, and men in pulpits who are actually emissaries of Satan, appearing as angels of light. We find in the book of Acts that the word church which in Greek is ekklesia, meaning called out ones. Did you know we're called out of this world? We're in this world, but we're not to be of this world. We're different. We're just pilgrims passing through, ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ on our way to that heavenly city. We're called out ones. The the word church is used more in the book of Acts than in all four Gospels combined. And that makes sense since the church wasn't born until ten days after the Lord's ascension. Acts is a book of church history. It is the only book in the New Testament that is what we could call church history. And it only covers in length a time span of about one generation, 30 to 40 years. Here's a question, and this is one of your homework questions. Why do you think that God concluded his inspired account of church history after only one generation? Well, I would suggest that it is because in these 28 chapters, the Lord showed us what the history of the church is supposed to have been like. This is, when we go through this book, we're going to see a vibrant, living, wonderful, commission-filling church for that first generation. This is what it should, and we're going to see a pattern of, of things that have happened in every succeeding generation. For example, after there's a great revival, what can you expect? Attack of Satan, right? Persecution. So this is what church history was supposed to be like. Now, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find the reality of what church history has been. <laughs> you know, 2,000 years ago, in those two chapters, some 2,000 years ago, the resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ spoke to John, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, seven letters to seven specific local Asia Minor churches. And in giving those seven letters, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, the Lord was prophetically giving the reality of what church history would be. And as we look back now, we see that that's exactly what has come to pass. The church, corporate church, has passed through successively those seven stages of church history. It's just amazing. Amazing. And it, again, is another proof of the divine inspiration of Scripture. But where do we find ourselves today in the 21st century? Sadly, we're in the Laodicean stage of church history. And that was the stage that just nauseated the Lord. It was lukewarm, so liberal. Hmm. And where is Christ? He's on the outside of the church knocking on the door. (laughs) Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open up and let me in. That's sad. So what we have in Acts is what the church should have been and what we have in Revelation 2 and 3 is what the church has been. But in Acts, God, through Luke, gave us the record of the first-generation church and what those first Christians accomplished, with the obvious implication being that every following generation of the body of believers who make up the church is to have duplicated what that first generation did. What did that first generation do? They literally obeyed and therefore fulfilled the commission of Christ. That is given to us in Acts 1.8. Which, by the way, and I'll give you this in a minute, Acts 1.8 gives us a very easy outline for the whole book of Revelation. Those on fire, and boy, were they on fire. Those on fire believers literally took the gospel from Jerusalem. Now, most people in the world at that day had never heard of Jerusalem. It was just a, an obscure, small city. But they took the gospel from Jerusalem All the way to the capital of the Roman Empire. When we close up Acts, Paul is in Rome. One generation. And that's, of course, um, yes, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. You heard yesterday, didn't you? (laughs) But the book does end with Paul in Rome. But some of the apostles and other disciples of the Lord, you know, we don't have their recorded accounts. But we know that they also took the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. For example, Thomas, where did he wind up? India. India. I mean, they just went north, south, east, and west and took it everywhere. So the quick outline for the whole book of Acts is this, and you don't have to write it down because it will be on the email. Um, But in chapters 1 to 7, we have preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. That's what the Lord said in Acts 1.8, you know, starting in Jerusalem, and that's what they did, chapters 1 to 7. Then in chapters 8 to 12, we have expanding the gospel into Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13, all the way to the end of the book, 28, taking the gospel throughout the Roman world to the uttermost parts of the world. So the book of Acts is a book that gives to us God's will for the history of the Christian church. Therefore, if we want to know what he intends for the church to do today, and we should, we need to help the church today, all of us, every one of us. If we want to know that, we are to look at what this first generation of believers did and do what they did. Because even though they did succeed, really, in getting the gospel to the entire world, guess what? With every new generation of believers, there is also a whole new generation of unbelievers that we need to reach, starting from our Jerusalem and going out best we can. You know, with support or whatever to the uttermost parts of the earth. Does that sound impossible for us today? I mean, maybe it does, but it shouldn't. Because we have exactly the same message that they had. We have exactly the same mission that they had. We have the same means they had, which was by way of the Holy Spirit, indwelling and empowering them. We have that. We also have the same Master, we have the same mission, same message, same means, same master, who is, of course, the resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And we have some advantages that they did not have, as Terry just tried to say here. We may not have been alive when Christ walked this earth, and we may not have been able to see him with our own eyes resurrected, which would have been pretty spectacular to see, right? We, we, we don't have that advantage, but we do have 27 New Testament books that were written by first century eyewitnesses of Christ, not only while he walked this earth and performed miracles and and preached, but they saw him resurrected. We have those 27 books to add to our understanding. Actually, everyone in this room probably has a completed Bible in your lap or on the pew next to you, don't you? That is a great advantage over what the first century believers have. Do you know that not a single apostle had a complete Bible? Even old John on the Isle of Patmos, when he wrote the book of Revelation, inspired by the Lord, of course, you know that that old guy did not have in his possession 66 bulky scrolls the whole bible. He didn't. You know, they didn't have printing presses to compact the whole bible like we have it. They had scrolls and they were big and they were bulky and you know, they had to roll them and unroll them to read them. He didn't have all that. Not one of them had the whole bible like we do. We also have 20 centuries of church history to look back on to see the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the working of of scripture in thousands of generations of people who have come and gone in places all over the world that we have all their testimonies and have seen you know what the spirit the changed lives of the spirit if you had known me before my salvation you wouldn't even know me completely different all of us can I hope say that unless you're saved as a young child not quite so obvious but mine was dramatic my husband's was dramatic we have all these testimonies we have godly preachers and theologians and Bible commentator writers over the centuries who have written books and preached and help us in our understanding and our knowledge of Scripture. We have technology. We have the printing press. We have cell phones. <laughs> Can you imagine the apostles with cell phones? <laughs> we have radio. We have TV. We have worldwide Internet. What do you think? Paul could have done if he had worldwide internet. (laughs) We have all those things to help us get the gospel message out everywhere. And think about this. These guys, those guys didn't even have cars. They didn't have airplanes. Everywhere they went, they walked. Maybe if they were fortunate, they rode a donkey. If I rode a donkey from Moore County up here for Bible study, you would take me all day. To get it. Oh, would I be sore? And they had to take some pretty rough ship trips in old wooden squeaky boats that a lot of times didn't make it. They crashed. Wow. We have so, what's our excuse? Man alive. Similarly to God's decision to build Israel upon the foundation of the 12 Jewish sons of Jacob, the Lord has built his church upon the foundation of 12 specially chosen Jewish men, the apostles. I don't know what time it is because I forgot my watch. Am I in trouble? It's 11.30? Okay. Um, I'm almost done. What is it? that made it possible for the Lord from heaven to continue his ministering work in the world through this new instrumentality called the church. What is it that made it possible? Well, it's made possible because he himself made proper preparation for this continuing work. The church could never have done it on its own, her own, without the Lord preparing everything. And that's what we find a summary of how he prepared the church for her ministering work in the world. We find that summarized in verses 2 and 3. Number one, before the Lord ascended, look, it says he gave commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. You want to hear a sampling of his commandments? Now this is going to prove to you that the first five books of of the New Testament are a Pentateuch. Because in every one of those first books, five books, he gave the same commandment, the commission commandment. In Matthew, he pronounced it like this. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the way even unto the end of the the age. That's Matthew. How does he say it in Mark? He says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. How does he say it in Luke? He says it like this, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Same commission, just worded differently. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke. Who's missing? John. How does he say the great commission in John? He says, as the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Well, there's one more, and it's in the book of Acts. And it's in Acts one eight. What does he say there? But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So he gave commandments to the apostles to prepare them. He also prepared them for their new ministry on earth by showing himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days. He made at least eleven post-resurrection appearances to his followers. I am sure there were more than that, but those are 11 that were recorded for us. He gave them all kinds of infallible proofs that he had risen how? Spiritually? Like a ghost? No, that he had risen bodily. What were some of those infallible proofs? He ate in front of them. He talked with them. He showed them his crucifixion scars. He, um... He showed them a flesh and bone body. He, They touched him. They talked with him. They saw him appear and disappear and defy the laws of matter and space, entering into a room without even opening a door, being in Emmaus one minute with Peter another minute, and then in the upper room in Jerusalem the next minute. And then he also defied gravity, didn't he? When he ascended up into heaven, they were so completely and utterly convinced and electrified and dynamized, if that is a word, by the fact of his bodily resurrection and his lordship that there was no way that anyone could ever shut them up. Even Caesar couldn't shut them up. What is our problem today? We don't even face persecution like they did, threaten of death, yet it might come, but we sure don't have it yet. They would literally take the gospel to the ends of the known world and they would die for it. He gave them infallible proofs and they knew it you can count on their testimony to us they were his witnesses we can believe them it is true jesus defeated death and he defeated sin it's true it's the gospel it is the good news of this world he spoke to his apostles the things pertaining the kingdom of of God. That's in the end of verse 3. Do you know that the book of Acts begins with Jesus preaching the kingdom of God, and the book of Acts ends with Paul preaching the kingdom of God. So the Lord made preparation by giving commission commandments, by showing himself alive and teaching things about the kingdom of God. But there was something else else very very important that the Lord did to prepare his church for his ministry work through her on earth as his spiritual body. What was that? The Holy He had to after he ascended, the Holy Spirit would descend. As the Lord Jesus Christ was born by the Spirit In a woman's physical womb. Remember the spirit overshadowed Mary? As he himself was born by the spirit in a woman's womb, so he likewise sent his spirit to give birth to his bride, his church, his spiritual body. And she was born on the day of Pentecost, ten days after his ascension. But in the meantime, they were given another commandment, and this had to be a very difficult commandment for them to obey because, as I said, they're electrified, they're dynamized, they're so excited, and they just want to tell the world that Jesus Christ is alive from the dead, and he is Lord, and he is Messiah, and he is King. But what does he tell them to do? Wait. Isn't that sometimes the hardest commandment of all? (laughs) To wait. But we're going to have to wait for next week to hear about that, all right? (laughs) So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for inspiring Luke to write a second letter to a man, Theophilus, who came to know and to love you through his exposure to the truth of your son as revealed in the gospel record. Thank you that the book of Acts was given in order to teach all generations of believers something of what church history is supposed to be like thank you that there is indeed something more foundational than than the schemes and the methods and the programs and the devices of men to grow the church that there is something non-negotiable to every local church in every land across this world And that makes sense because it's your church. So you obviously gave us the inspired example of what you want your church to be like and to do. So, Father, I ask that as we work our way through this book or part of it or whatever you have for us in the future, it's my prayer that every woman in this study will purpose in her heart to allow her thinking to be adjusted by your spirit with regard to her own life and her life in her family, and her life as a member of her local church, and also as a person of this generation of believers, and so that all of us corporately can accomplish great and wonderful things for you. That is our prayer. We love you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.